Good morning. It is good to be back with you here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church, be back with my church family. Uh, I uh, appreciate so much Pastor Dave, Pastor Ted filling in for me the last couple of weeks while I, along with a few others of your church family, were away in Kenya. And uh, as you know, we were there ministering and, and working. I want you to know I wasn't just taking time off. I did preach the last two Sundays, as a matter of fact. Preached in one church in a, in a little village called Wachara, which was uh, near the, the third largest city in, in Kenya called Kisumu. And that's sort of the western uh, section of, of Kenya. Uh, we were there a couple of Sundays ago with, with brothers and sisters in Christ in a very small location in, in, in a church uh, that, that, that resembled this church in this way. It was enclosed. Uh, that was how it, that was about probably as much uh, as we could say about it. Last week we were in a we were actually in a church in Kasumu, a much larger location that is still in the process of being constructed. So we were actually in an enclosed space, but there were no windows, there were no doors, uh, very open rafter beams. We were that that building uh, began its construction in 2003, and it's still in the process of being constructed. Uh, the reason that I tell you all that is because we as your team were representing you at Ivy Creek and, and we were there, but we were worshiping with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want you to know when we looked out on that crowd, when I was up there preaching and had an interpreter, they looked very different from you in a lot of respects. But here's the thing. Even though they worshipped in, in, in different ways and even though their, their, their dress was different in some ways and even though they, they looked very different and there was a lot of things that might have been superficially separating us. When you got down and you began to talk to them about Jesus and about what God had done in their lives, you really came away from the fact that there is only one Lord one faith and one baptism and that there was more in common that we shared that by far than what separated us. As a matter of fact, I made this statement more than one time that we had more in common in some ways with them than we did some of the folks that live on our same streets. And the reason why that is is because Jesus Christ was our Lord and Savior. And so that united us together. We had a great time. It was a, it was a tough trip, tough physically in a lot of respects. Uh, but God really blessed us. We were able to minister to some children uh, in, in the local Bennard's Vision School, a school that we already helped support through our missions uh, outreach of this church. Uh, many of those kids are orphans. Their parents are completely out of the picture. Some of them just live with, uh, uh, they actually stay there at the school. So it's an orphanage slash school. And, and this school, I want you to know, uh, is, is one of the top schools in, in, in that region of Kenya. They produce uh, children there that their education level is such that they top the charts. But here's the best part about it. Not only do they receive an education there. They are being introduced to the love of Christ day in and day out. And they are coming to faith in Christ. And so they're producing students, yes, but they're producing even more than that. They're producing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ that are going out and making an impact into their world. And so we're excited about that. I also had an opportunity to spend some time in a little seminary uh, and, and college there to, to, to kind of minister to about 20 students that had been called to the ministry and were training uh, to, be, to go into the pastorate and to go in to serve in the ministry there. And so that was a wonderful time for me personally to spend about four days to be able to preach to them and just to, to sit there and talk about what ministry's like and for us to share with one another, ask one another questions. It was just a great time for that. And so we're very excited about what God is doing in that part of the world. We're excited about the partnership that we've got. I know Todd is here, Kim Maynard, Kim Tuning 
Ray Daniel, another friend of ours named Jeff Meyer. We were all on this, this trip together and, and you know, we, we had a wonderful time and each of us could share our own stories and I hope that maybe a little later we're going to be able to come back and, and do that. But what I want you to know this morning is that we, we had had a video that we were going to share and we've had a technical hiccup that's not going to allow us to share that this morning, but we're hoping to be able to show that to you next week. So you got to come back, okay? you got to come back next Sunday to be able to see that. But I just want to say to you on behalf of, 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 of those of us who went on behalf of our families, thank you. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for thinking about us and for supporting us with your encouraging words for your prayers on our behalf. Many of you gave uh, financially. Uh, to be able to support this trip. Thank you for that. I also would like to just say there's another group that's going to be leaving this from, our, from, our, from, our, uh, from Ivy Creek to go to Guatemala City. You know we've been involved in mission there for, for quite a few years, and there's a, there's a group that are going to be leaving to go in July. I hope that they are already in your prayers. I hope that you're already praying about how you want to support them. They, they could still use some financial support too. We would love to, to have that on board. But they're going to be going and they're going to be ministering in schools down there too where children are going to get to be introduced to Christ. They're going to be going into homes where nobody has food and they're going to be taking food. And when they take that food into those homes, they're going to be sharing the gospel with those people. They're going to be ministering to, to churches that we already support financially and being able to be on the ground to help them engage in VBS there in Guatemala City. They're going to be going into public schools and being able to share their faith in Christ, something that we can't even do here in our culture, but they're going to be able to do there. So please be in prayer for them. Those, that group's going to come together. And I'm springing this on Todd right now. What I hope happens is that once they come back from that trip, and then we can have a combined service one Sunday morning where we're able to talk about what good things God is doing, not only in Kenya, but also in Guatemala City so that you can see as a church family how God is blessing the mission and the outreach of this church. Would that not be just a wonderful time to have there? We're excited about that. Thank you so much for all of your support, and we very much appreciate you supporting us and, and helping us be able to be the hands and feet of God in where we were this past week. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark, and this time to Mark's Gospel chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. And if you have already been in Sunday school this morning, and if you are going through the Gospel Project, you will know that your text for your Sunday school class came from Mark's Gospel chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Which means, I did not pick that to happen this way, but the Lord saw fit for it to fall this way. And so guess what? If you had it in your Sunday school lesson and you get it this morning, you should be able to know this parable inside and out when you leave here this morning. So we're excited about that, and I hope that you will, uh, you will bear with us as we, as we look at this once again this morning. The setting for Mark chapter 4 is what we've been looking at all along over the past few weeks of our, of our study. You'll recall that Jesus' popularity has just been, has been growing at, an, at a, a tremendous rate. Everywhere he goes, crowds are following him and people are coming to him. Many of them are coming to him because they want to see him perform his miracles. They want to be the recipients of some of his miracles, be healed of their diseases and to have their family members healed of diseases. So his popularity is growing, but also the setting of this text also lets us know that the opposition that Jesus was experiencing was also growing at a very rapid rate. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, had taken their stance against Jesus and against what he stood for. You recall they were, they were initially they were just very skeptical of Jesus, but that skepticism has now blown into a full-on desire to see Jesus destroyed. 
Most recently, these scribes and Pharisees have, have accused Jesus of only being able to do the miracles that he does because of the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So what we see is that very clearly the crowds are coming. Jesus has also called his disciples to him. So he has those around him. The crowds are coming. And then he has the scribes and the Pharisees that are opposing him. That gives us the setting for what begins to take place here in Mark chapter 4, in which Jesus, we find, continues to teach very large crowds. In fact, some scholars say that Mark 4, the teaching that takes place here, is actually the largest crowd that Jesus has spoken to up to this point in his ministry. And he does so, we find, by climbing into a boat and pushing away from the shore far enough so that he could have a good visible panoramic view of all of the crowds who had come to press in upon him. And so that sort of sets the stage for what we're going to see this morning in Mark chapter 4. Let's just read our text together beginning in verse 1, working our way down through verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And again he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And he taught them many things by parables. And he said to them in his teaching, Listen, we might even say this, Listen up, pay attention, he says. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up and increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this word, world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for 
what it teaches us. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit might come this morning and open our hearts and minds to the truth of what you reveal to us through the teaching of this parable. Help us to be able to not only understand it, but then to apply it to our lives in such a way that when we leave this place, we will be changed by the power of the Word working in us and the power of your Holy Spirit bringing conviction into our lives. Lord, I can't help but think that this week, as particularly tonight through Thursday night, there will literally be hundreds of children on the campus of this church. Father, our desire is to sow the seeds of the gospel into their lives. Father, there are going to be many who are in this room right now, many who are in the first service who are helping and who are assisting and who are taking the time to teach these kids. Lord, I pray that their hearts would be good fertile soil and that the seeds of the gospel would take root and it would produce this fruit that we are looking at this morning. Let that be so for your glory and for your honor and for their good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, for Mark's gospel, this passage that we've just read, that I've just read for you this morning, is is somewhat unique. I, I told you in my introduction to the gospel of Mark that when Mark writes, he's much more interested in covering the actions of Jesus and the things that Jesus did and the works that Jesus performed, he's less concerned about telling us all of the things that Jesus taught, as do Matthew and Luke. The teaching of Matthew and Luke is a much longer section than you find in Mark's gospel. Yet, right here in this passage, Mark does stop and begin to recount for us a specific time that Jesus began to teach the large crowd upon who, uh, who had been following him. Not only does he teach, but he interprets that which he teaches. Now in this passage, what we see is that Jesus is teaching this crowd by telling them a story. He tells them a parable about a farmer who goes out into the field to sow seed. We kind of get the image of of a man probably walking uh, with a bag draped around his neck and in that bag would have been filled with seed, probably wheat, wheat seeds that he would have taken and he would have just scattered it. As he walked up and down this field, he would have scattered it by hand and let the seed fall wherever it may. Now, typically, prior to him doing that, the field would have been cleared of all of the growth, the old growth that was there. It would all have been pulled up and done away with, perhaps even burned. But doing so would have caused that field to look pretty much the same. The sower really would have had no idea really where the rocks were that lay beneath the surface, where the other things that could have been there. The field would have looked the same because all the growth would have been taken away. But here's where, and we would do that if we were going to to sow a field today. We would do the same thing, clear it of all the growth. But here's where farming kind of differs between the way that it was done then and the way that it's done now. Historians tell us that unlike the typical farming methods of today, those first century farmers did not typically plow the ground before they scattered the seed. In fact, they did it just the opposite. They scattered the seed first. Then they went back with a rudimentary tool to kind of scratch into the ground and cause that seed to fall in underneath the surface. Now, that kind of seems backwards probably to the way that we do things today. But nevertheless, that's what we learn is how that was typically done in the first century world. Now, according to Jesus' parable... In this process, some of the seed was inevitably lost that the sower sowed. 
Because as soon as it fell, it fell on beaten paths around the field, places where people walked and beat that down to the point where it was a very hardened kind of ground. And when, it, when the seed lay there, birds would come by and eat that seed and it would go away. Jesus also tells us that some of the seed ended up on, the thick, on a thin covering of soil that covered over rocks. Rocks were a very familiar feature in the rocky Galilean countryside. And so the early rains would then combine with the heat that was absorbed in those rocks. And together that would cause those seeds that were underneath, this, underneath the surface of the soil to germinate very quickly and they would shoot up. But in the heat of the noonday sun that would come, those, those wheat would then go away because they would not have deep enough roots. The rock underneath it would keep it from having the roots that would go underneath it. And consequently, it would wither and die quickly. Still a, ter- a third type of soil that Jesus describes is a soil where thorns and thistles grew. Now I told you that the, the field would have been cleared of all the other growth, but the, but the seeds, the, the roots of a lot of those thorns and thistles would still be into the ground. And so therefore, when, when other seed, when the seed of the wheat was sown by the farmer and it would go into the ground and would begin to germinate, what would also happen would be those thorns and those thistles would begin to grow up right alongside it. And consequently, as that happened, it became an unequal battle between who would win. The vigorous weeds eventually choked out the real crop that the farmer had sowed. Finally, Jesus tells us that the other seed that the farmer sowed fell into good soil and that the seed grew steadily and it grew up and it began to produce an important yield of 30, 60, 100 times the amount of seed that was sown. And so this is the parable that Jesus tells. This is the illustration that he gives to this crowd as he sits there in that boat. And what we might ask is why this parable? And particularly we might ask why now? You see, I believe both questions are important if we're to understand why Jesus teaches and if we're really to understand the importance of this parable. Why this parable? Why now? I think the timing is, is, is really important. And, and in the parallel passage to this here in Mark 4, we find in Matthew chapter 13 that, that, that Matthew records this exact same event. And he tells us that Jesus taught this parable on the same day that the Pharisees had begun to align themselves really against Jesus. According to Matthew's gospel, Jesus taught this parable right on the heels of the Pharisees' decisions to plot against him to destroy him. It occurred right on the heels of Jesus being accused by the Pharisees of healing a man through the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. It was the same day that Jesus had pointed out to his disciples that they were his closest family. And he declared in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Open the same day, Matthew says. So as Matthew's gospel makes clear, and as Mark's gospel has also communicated to us, Jesus had come to do the will of the Father. And in doing so, he had invited all who would, who would do so to come and follow him and to receive his message. And 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 receive his ministry and obey the Father as well. But it had become obvious that the religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees, well, they had no intention of following Jesus. 
On the other hand, Jesus had called 12 disciples out of a group that had surrounded themselves around him and had decided to leave everything in order that they might follow him. And so the contrast between Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders is now established explicitly. Two distinct groups have formed. The scribes and the Pharisees who oppose Jesus and the disciples who are following him. But what about the crowd? What about the large masses of people who continue to flock to Jesus? They too have received his invitation to the kingdom. They too have heard his messages and his witnesses of, and have witnessed his, his miracle powers. What of them? What will, what will they do with Jesus? Will they follow the lead of Jesus' disciples? Leave everything in order that they might follow him and commit their lives to him? Or will they follow the lead of the religious leaders and reject Jesus? By this point, the crowd has had ample opportunity to make their choice. So now Jesus intends to test their responsiveness. At the same time, he intends to instruct his disciples about the manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. So this parable does both. And that, gives us the, that tells us the setting. That tells us the why now. But we still might wonder why Jesus teaches in parables. I mean, after all, that's what his disciples wanted to know. Consider this for a moment. Jesus has this really large crowd. And, and they're gathered around him. He has a small subset that are firmly behind him and willing to follow him wherever he goes. He has another small subset of the religious elite that are firmly entrenched against him. And in the middle is this great big large crowd who can be swayed one way or the other. And it was at that particular moment that Jesus gets in the boat and pushes back away from the shore so that he can see them all. And I can only imagine that his disciples at this point are just chomping at the bit. They're thinking, yes, this is the time. This is the time, Jesus, where you can step back and look at the crowd and you can very clearly establish your goals and you can very clearly tell them who you are and what you plan to do by going to Jerusalem and being the Messiah and setting up your earthly reign. This is the time when you can let them know that you're going to be crowned king and this is the time to show the whole crowd just who you are. This is a time for clarity. But instead, Jesus tells this crowd a story, not of a king and his kingdom, yet rather he tells the story of a sower who goes out to sow seed. And in verse 10, his disciples ask him about the parable. Matthew's gospel expands on that a little bit more and, and, and says that they really want to know, why are you teaching in parables, Jesus? In other words, their question probably carried the force of, Jesus, this is your moment. This is your opportunity to clearly define your goals and make your case for why the multitudes should follow you. But instead, you speak in parables. Why? It doesn't make sense. In answering his disciples, the question that they asked, Jesus states in verses 11 and 12 that his use of parables was really designed to force everyone into one of two groups. Those who hear and believe, those who do not. I like how Warren Wearsby has put it. He says this, Jesus used parables both to hide the truth and to reveal it. In other words, the crowd did not judge the parables. The parables judged the crowd. The careless listener 
who thought he knew everything would hear only a story that he did not really understand. And the result in his life would be judgment. On the other hand, Wearsby writes, the sincere listener with a desire to know God's truth would ponder the parable, confess his ignorance, submit to the Lord, and then begin to understand the spiritual lesson that Jesus wanted to teach. Now, having made that clear, then he gives an explanation. In verse 13, Jesus actually chides his disciples for them not understanding the parable to begin with. In fact, he even says, how are you going to understand any of the parables that I teach if you don't get this one? But then beginning in verse 14, his grace and his mercy begin to show because he chooses to expose or to interpret for them what the parable actually means. And this is where we get the benefit because now he, his interpretation is something that we too can learn. What does it mean about the manifestation of the kingdom? What we learn from Jesus' explanation is that the seed is the word. In Matthew's gospel, literally, he says it's the word of the kingdom. We might understand that it is the gospel. It is the word of the gospel that comes to us and tells us that Jesus Christ has done something for sinful men, women, boys and girls that we could not do for ourselves. That he gave, he came to give his life as a ransom for us. That is the seed of the gospel that is ultimately going to be sown all throughout the, the different soils. So it's exactly as I prayed earlier what we intend to do this week. When all the children come on this campus, we want to sow far and wide the seed of the gospel that lets them know that Jesus Christ loved them enough that he came to give his life in their place. And our hope, our prayer is that these children will come to that understanding and that they would receive the gospel and that it will germinate in their lives and it would begin to produce fruit. That is our goal. That's what we're praying for. That's what I want you to pray for for this week. And so the basic picture that Jesus paints here is of a sower who goes out to sow this seed and then the soils become the hearts of the individuals in whom the seed is sown. Now notice that in this parable there are two constants, the sower and the seed. The sower and the seed do not change. It's the sower who's always sowing the same seed. The variable in this parable are the hearts, the soils upon which the seed falls. And that then draws us to really the point that Jesus is trying to make. He wants us to be able to see the difference, the differences among the various types of soil. And so he begins to explain them to us. And so I want you to note the first point on your outline this morning comes there in verse 15. The first soil of the parable represents the hardened heart. The first soil represents the hard heart. It describes as the soil along the wayside of the path. And such ground had been trampled down as we know. And, and when that happened, the seed would bounce there. And, and Matthew says that, that birds would come and eat it up. And that was like the wicked one. Mark, Mark just says that it's Satan who immediately takes that word away and keeps them from ever understanding it. We might understand, why, how do people's hearts become hardened? What hardens people's hearts? Well, there's really only one answer. It's sin. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, The futility of their minds, having understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That phrase there, being past feeling, literally means to become calloused. I noticed 
uh, with, with great amazement, quite frankly. We, were in, we lived in Pastor Bennard's home over the last couple of weeks when we were in Kenya, and his little boy named Paul was five years old and, or six years old, and, and Paul rarely wore shoes. He didn't have a need for them. And they had a gravel driveway out there, and that boy could run across that gravel driveway and not even wince. And I would just go, oh, that had to hurt. But you want to know, he was so used to not wearing shoes that his feet had become very toughened to it. It didn't, it didn't bother him to run across rocks like that. That's what it means to be past feeling. It's what it means to be calloused. And that's okay with your feet. But Paul says, be careful if that happens to your heart. Be careful because the heart becomes hardened because of the futility of our minds, our darkened understanding. We embrace a life of sin. And when you embrace a life of sin, you just begin to embrace it even more to the point where the callousness continues to develop. And that's what causes a hardened heart. That's exactly how he describes it here. The most obvious example from this text that we see of hardened hearts is that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus had been proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the entire crowds, but they... Because of the hardness of their hearts, the gospel would just bounce off of it. The preaching did not convict them. It only further entrenched them in their hardness. So that's the first soil. It represents the hardened heart. But then notice in verse 16, we find an explanation of the second type of soil. And the second point on your outline is this. The second type of soil that Jesus mentioned stands for the shallow heart. As I mentioned, this, this, was, this was seed that fell upon ground that was just slightly covering rocks. And it sprang up, the seed sprang up quickly. But then as the sun began to burn down on it, it faded very quickly as well. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus describes a person who hears the word, receives it with joy. But then when trouble and persecution comes, that person falls away. What we should note is that such a heart is, has sufficient receptivity to allow the seed to sprout, but it does not have enough depth to allow for any development of root. There are many today who are like that. They come to church with very shallow lives, shallow hearts. They are, they are excited about the joy that they see in a church. They're excited about the parts of the gospel that deal with eternal salvation and joy and peace. But then when difficulty comes, when, when trouble comes, maybe it's a loss of a job. Perhaps it's a misunderstanding with another Christian. Perhaps it's sickness. Perhaps it's a broken marriage or a broken relationship. Suddenly they fall away. I've known many who fit in such a category. One, one person in particular, I recall, he became extremely active in his church. He was there, as they say, every time the doors were open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Every time there was a Bible study, men's Bible study, he was the first one there, last one to close up. He was there all the time. He was always there, but then something happened in his personal life. Caused him to become bitter. That bitterness took root began to eat away at him. The noonday sun began to beat down on that man's life, exposed the shallowness of his heart, so much so that he eventually disassociated himself with the church and to this day does not want to have any conversation with you at all about God, about his grace, about his mercy. Sadly, his story is shared by too many. Too many in our churches across our country in this world. Jesus predicted and told us that difficult times would come, that challenging times would come, that life would not always be a bed of roses, and that circumstances would not always work according to the way that we think that they should. But even more so, Jesus predicted that these tribulations and that these trials, that when they are faced by his followers, sometimes they will be faced simply because they believe in the gospel and they take a stand 
for the gospel. But what we know is that under the intense heat of such troubles and persecutions, the professing believer, his true nature will be revealed. While others, well, they will stumble and they will fall. So that's the second type of soil. It represents the shallow heart. But then notice in verses 18 and 19, Jesus interprets us the third type of soil. The third point on your outline this morning is this. The third soil that Jesus describes stands for the strangled heart. The strangled heart. This type of soil produced wheat, but ultimately that wheat was crowded and strangled by the thorns that grew up around it. Jesus says in verse 19 that those thorns that strangle the life out of the gospel and the kingdom are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. You see, the cares of this world, this the worry. It's the things that we tend to worry about more than, more than we should. It's the things that, that are there underneath the surface and they come up and our worry means that we want to take control of our lives and we want to be the one in charge and we want to direct the paths of our own lives. And then when you combine that with the deceitfulness of riches, which tells us that if we can have more and accommodate more and accumulate more and, and be able to oversee more, then those things will make us happy. Those two things, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, when they come up in our lives, Jesus says it chokes out the seed. You see, in Scripture, we come face to face with the fact that the pursuit of earthly riches, though it is tempting, it never delivers what it promises. Jesus repeatedly warned against the, the unwise pursuit of riches and the danger in trusting in those things to provide comfort. The fact is, the more things that we have, the more money, then the more possessions, the more gadgets, the more accounts, the more that we tend to focus on those things to be the things that bring us enjoyment and to bring us security and happiness. And you know what? It's those very things that tend to bring us all of our worry and all of our cares as well. One writer that I read said this, he says, Riches do not choke a person all at once. It's a gradual process. Like the weeds in Christ's parable, riches grow up gradually, slowly, very slowly. And then they strangle the buddings of spiritual life within. And so he writes, he says, Beware, beware of that if you either have possessions or are on your merry way to acquiring them. Ultimately, what Jesus wants us to be aware of is that the combined priorities of worry and wealth will strangle the life of the message of the kingdom of heaven so that it is unable to bear fruit. That's the third soil. It represents the strangled heart. And then finally, we come to the fourth and final soil that Jesus interprets for us. Notice the fourth point on your outline this morning is this. The final soil that Jesus described in his parable stands for the receptive hearts. Receptive hearts. Notice that this is the only ground that Jesus calls good. He's talked about four different kinds. This is the only one that he describes as being good. This soil represents the person who not only hears the gospel message, but understands it and allows it to take full root in his or her heart so that it can produce fruit. The soil represents the true believing disciple. Only those whose hearts have been receptive to the word of Jesus' message will produce the fruit of the kingdom life, the evidence that they are truly children of the kingdom. And understand, fruit production is important in the life of a believer. Jesus focused on it a number of times. You may recall in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says that his disciples will be known by their fruit. He says, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
He says, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a, and nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, Jesus says, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Later in Matthew chapter 12, he also says this. He says, a tree is known by its fruit. And he says, a good man is also known by his fruit. He says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So when we begin to understand what Jesus says about fruitfulness and apply it to the message that he gives here in this parable, what we realize is that good seed planted in good soil will grow and it will produce fruit. And therefore, when the message of the gospel hits the heart of someone who is receptive to it, it will take root and it will grow and then you will have fruits that are born spiritually in your life. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that the reason he began to teach these parables was so that he could divide people into two different groups. Those who would hear and believe and those who would not, who would harden their hearts against him. And ultimately, friend, what I want you to know is that all of humanity will be divided into those two groups. When we stand before Christ, there will only be two groups. Those who have by faith received the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in their place, confessed their sins before him, and trusted in the gospel. And those who have not. Furthermore, this parable was intended not only as an instructive tool for his disciples, but it was also a means by which he intended to test the responsiveness of this large crowd that was before him that day. And I want you to know it accomplishes the exact same purpose today. You see, Jesus talks about these different kinds of soil and the different spiritual conditions that they represent. And when he does, we have to come to realize that all of us find ourselves in this parable Somewhere. All of us in this room are represented by one of these four types of soil. Such a recognition causes us to have to ask ourselves some pretty important questions, and I want to pose them to you as we come to a close this morning. The first question I would ask you is simply as this. How have you responded to the seed of God's Word? Is your heart like shallow ground or are you deeply rooted in the grace of God? Has pain, has some difficulty caused you in your life? Or let me ask it this way, perhaps something good, some pleasure come into your life that has distracted you from the work that God wants to do in your life and has it choked out your fruitfulness? It's an important question. Is your heart a receptive heart? Have you allowed the seed of the gospel of the kingdom to settle down into your life and your thinking to the degree that it has turned you away from sin and directed your faith toward Jesus Christ? Is your life producing the fruits of the Holy Spirit? When people look at you, can they see the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness faithfulness and self-control, are those things evident in your life when people look at them? Do they give evidence to the fact that your heart has received the gospel seed? Friend, I want you to know there are not very many more important questions that you could possibly ask yourself than those. 
the passage like this really calls for introspective look. It causes us to actually stop and evaluate our own personal lives in light of what Jesus reveals to us in his interpretation. And it brings me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The only proper response to the message of the gospel is to believe it and receive it into our hearts and allow it to grow so that it produces fruit for the kingdom of heaven. This, this is what the Lord's will for your life is. That you will receive, you will hear it, receive it, and that it will grow and produce fruit. If you want to know what God's will for your life is, that's it. The question is, is that what's happening? Last Sunday as I preached in Kasumu, Kenya, I asked a very similar questions. They weren't posed exactly the same way, but they were, they were similar. And I, they were questions regarding the commitment that they, the group that I preached to had to Christ. And I also pray, just as I pray today, that people will receive the Word of God and that they will respond to it. And it was during that invitation time that a grown woman, I really don't know her age, I don't know, Todd, if she may have been in the 30s or 40s, came forward. And when she came forward that morning, she came forward to repent of her sins and to trust in Christ to be her Lord and Savior. And my prayer for her was, and still is, that the soil of her heart would not be shallow, that it would not be strangled by the things of this world, and certainly that it would not be hardened by sin, but rather that the soil of her heart would be good soil that would receive the good news of the gospel and produce fruit for the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that is my prayer for you this morning. For each and every one of us, the prayer is the same. That our lives would be characterized as good soil, that the seed of the gospel continues to grow and to produce fruit 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Because Jesus tells us this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says, pay attention. Note it for yourself. Brothers and sisters, I have nothing else that I can say except the same thing and to tell you that this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.